Welcome to the Wisconsin Music Podcast. Thanks, Dean. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Wisconsin Music Podcast, where we amplify Wisconsin music. Our guest today is not only an audio engineer, he is a mastering engineer. Now, hold on to your headphones because we have the honor of sitting down with the one and only Justin Perkins. His name might not be a household one, but his work has touched the ears of millions. Imagine your albums you cherish, the songs that have moved your soul, and music that defines your life. Now imagine them sounding even more breathtaking, more involved. That's the magic of mastering. Justin's illustrious career spans over two decades, filling with stories that read like a who's who of the music world. He's been the audio architect behind the remastering of iconic albums by legendary artists like The Replacements, Shania Twain, Busta Rhymes, just to name a few. But expertise does not end there. Justin has lent his golden ears and expert touch to thousands of independent bands and artists from all corners of the globe, helping them achieve audio excellence. Yet Justin's journey doesn't stop at mastering boards and mixing consoles. Picture this, a young man fueled by a passion for sound, honing his skill to a vibrant Midwest music scene. His journey takes him from playing bass in local bands to sharing stages with music icons. He's graced the bass lines for the influential Screeching Weasel, rocked alongside Tommy Stinson's post-replacements band, Bash and Pop, and even performed on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. But Justin's talents don't stop at mastering and performing. He's a dedicated educator who's shared his wisdom as an audio and mastering instructor at MATC, which is Milwaukee Area Technical College. He's a proud member of the Audio Engineering Society, also known as AES, and a voting member of the Recording Academy with a say in the prestigious Grammy Awards. And if that's not enough, Justin also dedicates time to help others master the art of mastering through monthly live streams for Steinberg Media. He's a guiding light for new and seasoned users of WaveLab Pro, helping them unlock the full potential of their craft. With all of this and more, Justin is a true luminary in the world of music production, a beacon of inspiration for aspiring artists, engineers, anyone who believes in the power of sound. So get ready to embark on a sonic adventure like no other as we delve into the life, the art, and the mastery of sound with Justin Perkins right here on the Wisconsin Music Podcast. Welcome to the Wisconsin Music Podcast. This week we have Justin Perkins of Mystery Room Mastering. He is a mastering engineer who has done many projects. He's based in Madison, Wisconsin. He's worked on remastering projects with uh, bands like The Replacements, In Vogue, um, Jason Mraz. Uh, he has worked in his, um, he's worked with, uh, excuse me, he's worked at Butch Vig's Smart Studios in Madison as well as a recording and mixing engineer, I believe, uh, for a number of projects, and has been working full-time in the audio field for over 20 years. Um, and he has also uh, his own studio, uh, like I said, Mystery Rooms Mastering, and has been in business since 2009. So, Justin, welcome to the Wisconsin Music Podcast. Thank you for having me. Let's get a little bit of an intro of you. How did you get into music? In the bio you sent me, um, you played bass and other instruments so how did you get into playing music in the first place well you know my my parents gave me a cheap acoustic guitar when i was in you know second third grade and it sat around until fifth grade when i had this elementary school teacher that was really into the beatles and he'd bring his guitar in every friday at the end of the school day and we'd sing Beatles songs and david bowie and cool stuff and right at that time nirvana and nevermind had just come out so, you know, I, I grew up in the middle of, uh, you know, 
I wouldn't say rural Wisconsin, but not in a big city. There's no um, major concerts or culture. So I was here listening to Top 40 radio, and when Nirvana came out, I was like, wow, this is actually music that I can identify. You know, not, not you know, I just mean like there's drums, bass. It was really simple. Drums, bass, guitars, just straight ahead rock. None of this like synthesizers and all that crazy stuff in the 80s, which I've grown to appreciate. But all of a sudden, music became something that maybe me and my friends could play. Okay. Because we didn't have computers to do all the synthesizer stuff coming out of the 80s or the huge hair metal stuff that wasn't going to happen for fifth graders but nirvana was like wow that's cool we can play this so we just started playing making up our own songs and uh i just sort of became the guy that knew how to run the tape you know we had a cassette eight track at the time okay and i paid the most attention when the guy dropped it off that we rented it from and i became the guy that pressed stop and play and record and put the microphones up and next thing you know other bands from our high school were asked Maybe it was even middle school. Yeah, it was middle school at that time, asking me to record them, whether it's in my dad's basement or their parents' basement, you know, high school, things like that. So just got into it at an early age, just out of necessity. I was okay. never like thought it could be a career or I was never good with electronics or soldering or any of that stuff. I just, we just wanted to get our music recorded so we could listen to it in the car on a cassette tape and, uh, that's just got into it that way. Nice, nice. So, how did you transition from that into working at Butch Vig Smart Studios in Madison? Well, after you know a handful of years recording in my dad's basement, you know I've graduated high school at that point. So this would be like the year two thousand. I graduated in ninety nine, and. Even when we were in high school, we had gone up to a studio called Simple Studios in Green Bay, and that was known for doing all the great sounding rock and punk albums of the of the of the era and the area. You know, all the Fox Valley, Green Bay, even some Milwaukee bands and even some regional bands would come to Simple Studios. So I graduated from my dad's basement. I got invited to work at Simple Studios in Green Bay and just got more exposure, more practice more repetitions of recording all types of music. So I had a pretty good client base by that point in time. You know, I was in my early 20s and I got the opportunity, you know, I just recorded so many local bands, whether it was random people that would call Simple Studios or friends of our bands, you know, word of mouth kind of thing. And eventually um, a friend of mine had gotten word that Smart Studios in Madison was looking for another engineer um it wasn't like a a full-time salary job although i was on the payroll it was more of a they were looking for someone that could bring in some work because which i could because i had clients and they were also looking for someone to handle some of their overflow because they would get calls from local bands that didn't necessarily have an engineer preference but needed to record and if if the top you know two or one two three you know, they had like two or three guys at the time. Maybe I was like, it was kind of a strange transitional period, but basically I did some of their overflow stuff too, where bands would come in and say, we don't care who the engineer is. And if I was available and everyone was busy, I would engineer their session. So it was, I wasn't full-time employee, but I was on their payroll. You know, when I did stuff for them, it was taxed and got a paycheck and all that kind of stuff. 
um basically yeah you know it worked i went down and met the guys at smart and got the opportunity to just sort of join the team and just kept recording bands but i wasn't exclusively at smart i would still go up to green bay sometimes if the budget required a little less or geographically if the band couldn't travel or for whatever reason so i wasn't totally locked into smart studios it was just kind of my home base for a couple of years you know in the mid 2000s uh, and that's sort of when i started mastering too not because i wanted to just out of necessity it was like you know back then it wasn't so easy to send your album off to get mastered through the internet it was like it would take you all day to upload an album of mixes if you had good internet maybe two days if it if you had right it was a it was quite a thing to upload such big files so mastering was way more regional then so there was a mastering studio in milwaukee that people would go to but sometimes driving there and organizing that was not easy or it was too expensive for them. So I got into mastering again out of necessity because projects I was mixing needed to be mastered. And if, if there was no budget or it was a logistical challenge, then I would do the mastering. Um, you know, not, I wasn't proud of a lot of that mastering work, but basically in a sense, whoever's the last person that touches it, mastered it. And right, that was kind right. of what I was doing. But I started to get more calls for just mastering because it would say, certain records would say, you know, recorded, mixed, and mastered by Justin. And um, people, then I just started getting calls just for mastering. And it was like, first, uh, I didn't want to say yes because I'm like, I'm not a mastering engineer. But as more calls started coming in and emails, I was like, maybe I should figure out how to be, to do mastering more than what I think it is at the time. So that's when I sort of, it was a slow process, really. It wasn't like yeah. Friday I was mixing and Monday I was all of a sudden mastering. It was a couple of years of developing the skill set and understanding what the tasks are. Um, you know, there's obvious tasks of mastering, but there's a whole lot of detailed work I had really no idea about that I had to learn one project at a time. Yeah. And, then, and um, before we get into more of those details, why don't we kind of let, let the listeners know, you know, Sometimes they don't know exactly what mastering is. So what, for you, is the best way to describe what mastering is? Yeah, that's a really good question because, yeah, I, I get a fair amount of projects where people are like, I don't know what mastering is, but I was told I have to do it, so here's my project. And it's it's any number of things, but it's basically making sure that the project is ready for um, production and distribution. So... Um, it's obviously making each song sound as good as it can individually. It's also making sure that an EP or an album sounds cohesive from song to song so that when you listen to it from front to back, the level of the song doesn't change, or at least it makes sense. If, if you're going from a rock song to a piano ballad, there is going to be a natural drop-off there, and that's okay. And it's deciding what what's too much dynamic and what's just right, what feels good. If you just went by the numbers and you made a rock song and an acoustic song the same number or the, even the same on a meter, the acoustic song usually sounds louder. It's, right. That's a long story. But basically getting the whole album or release ready for production and distribution, uh, so making sure it sounds good in general, all the songs are cohesive, 
the spacing and flow between songs is good. You know, the, t- the amount of space between songs. I do some albums where the songs crossfade or have really tight or precise transitions. And I have to make sure that not only is that correct, but that it is also correct for the files we send out for CD production, the files we send for, out for streaming on, on the streaming services, uh, vinyl, you know, af- usually after a project is approved if the artist's doing vinyl then i make the vinyl cutting master we call it so it's it's a combination of creative choices and quality control because in that process of making songs sound good i can i'm determining or i can at least control you know how much low end is in the in there or high end i can't go in and turn up just the bass drum or just the floor tom or just the bass guitar um, i'm working with stereo files so if I turn up the high frequencies, it's going to turn up the crack of the snare drum, but also the presence of the voice, the cymbals, the vocal sibilance could become too much. You have to be really careful with your changes because it affects everything. If I increase the low end, it might make the bass drum feel nice and powerful now, but it could make the bass guitar too boomy. Um, or if the kick drum is too boomy and I solve that problem, the bass guitar might sound a little weak. And in order to solve those problems or decide if there's problems or make any decisions, you have to have a really neutral listening environment. So that's kind of what separates mastering studios from recording and mixing. Because um, my biggest investment and my biggest tool and biggest asset is my monitoring system. So I can invest you know, nearly 100% of my budget in my monitoring system, whereas a recording studio needs to buy mic stands and microphone cables and a mixing console or something with a lot of inputs to record a band and then have everything set up so you can work. And then, you know, having a big mixing console or big flat surface in front of your speakers does not sound great because you get um, artifacts from having stuff in front of your speakers. So mastering studios are just kind of, set up more for listening than you know what you see on tv when people are in front of a huge mixing board and you know and then you know our my speakers are full range so i can hear very low frequencies you know if i'm doing an acoustic album it's very common for me to hear thumps and plosives from people um, bumping on the floor or words that start with a p and the wind blows across the microphone and it creates a really low frequency thump. And you can miss that on small speakers. You know, recording and mixing studios tend to have smaller speakers and you can miss a lot of stuff. So it's basically like having a really nice microscope, audio microscope, so I can hear every detail that's going on and decide if it's a problem or not, or at least be aware that it's there. Yeah. Things like right. that. Cool. You know, sometimes when people mix on small speakers, they might not realize that they have way a whole lot of low frequency information that is bogging down their mix and causing it to sound weird in the car or on big stereos, big speakers and mm-hmm. a mastering room. I guess the, the, the biggest asset, like I said, of a mastering room is just having really great monitoring, you know, way more than your average recording and mixing studio is going to have. Cause that's really the only goal. I mean, it's cool to have analog gear and racks of stuff, but, as a mastering studio, your biggest priority is your monitoring and your the training of your actual ears and uh, attention to detail. Yeah. And like you were saying earlier, it, it's just 
a great way to make sure that your your project has a great consistency from beginning to end and from song to song, either shuffle or not. Right. And the the advantage I have in mastering is fresh ears, fresh approach. When you've been recording and mixing an album, you've heard the songs many times and you can get used to things that are kind of weird. You can get used to something that's too bright or a little too extreme that might be a turnoff for the listener. But when I put it on, I've never heard it before. And it's like, oh, I'm reacting right away. Like, oh, that's way too bright. You know, the symbols and vocal sibilants are killing me. We got to fix that. Or it's really thin. We got to add some bottom end. Or it's too boomy or muddy. We got to fix that. So I'm reacting just like you would if you threw in a CD to your car stereo and it either is perfect or it comes out blazing or it's too quiet. I'm just reacting quickly. And it's it's such a fast process. You know, I can master an album in you know, five to eight hours, I would say. Um, I can master a song in an hour or less. And that's not bragging. That's just like, if you have to spend two or three hours mastering a song, there's either something really wrong with it or really wrong with your monitoring that you think that there's all these problems that there's not because it's a, it's, it's a really quick process. And I'm not trying to say it's not important. It's just when by the time it gets to mastering all these decisions need to be made like how much vocal reverb is there how loud are the drums um guitar effects you know all that stuff is all mixing stuff um your mastering engineer is just working with a stereo file or a stereo source so the the decisions are more global um you know global level you know it's i think the analogy is mastering is looking at the forest mixing is looking at the trees or maybe that's backwards but um (laughs) i can't think when i'm trying to speak but you know it's just a bigger picture approach than mixing you're not getting into the weeds of and of course you're not getting into vocal tuning and drum right drum timing or drum samples or any of that stuff that's all handled in mixing right i mean basically maybe in like a woodworking analogy is like the craftsman has has built this the way he wants it to look and everything like that and you kind of put like the the polish on top of it basically to bring yeah, out everything that is kind of hidden the grains and all that other kind of stuff yeah f- photography analogies work really well you know we're basically framing the picture you know in mastering the picture in mastering the picture is already taken the content is there we're just framing it and retouching it a little bit to make sure that it looks great in general and it looks great on any kind of screen or wherever it's going to be hanging you know we're not we're not going in and changing the painting the the content it's just framing it so it's seen in its best light and looks amazing when someone looks at it right uh, it's basically like in, in the video world it's like color correction for audio you know people edit videos they edit the content what's in the video but then before it goes out someone goes through and adjusts the color so that it looks good on all TV screens. Um, you know, they're not changing what's there. They're just, you know, in charge of that last step to make sure it's translating well to ev- everywhere. Right. And everybody, you know, musicians, recording engineers, mixing engineers, and master engineers probably have people that they look up to or have studied um, to learn, you know, their craft better. Um, are you one of those people that? has done that in the past where you've kind of studied how some, or is it possible for you to study how someone has mastered something? It's a little hard because you don't know what it sounded like first. You know, that's the thing with mastering is you you don't know what it sounded like before it was mastered. 
some projects are very light touch. Like I do very little work at art. The mixes are already amazing. My job is just to get out of the way and not screw it up. Other projects need a little more um, help, kind of tone shaping, carving out stuff that doesn't need to be there, giving it some energy and stuff like that. So, and every day is different. Every project is different. So it's hard to know who's doing what. And the people doing it at a very high level, like Bob Ludwig, Greg Calby, um, a lot of these, there's really no household name mastering engineers, but in the world of mastering, there's a, there's a handful of legends. And by the time they become legends, the projects they're getting are also very good sounding. So I don't want to say that it's cheating, but their job becomes easier if they're only getting amazing records to master. You know, it's like they're very rarely having to work with someone that's mixed their first album in their bedroom that really sounds off. They're usually working on high-level records that basically already sound finished before they get it, and they're more of a very light-touch quality control pass-through, whereas people more in the mid-range, I'm, I'm kind of in like the working-class field where I'm doing a lot of independent bands that are um, you know, selling a few hundred CDs and a couple hundred or a couple thousand vinyl records and streaming. They're maybe not making a living at music. Some of them are, some aren't. I'm kind of right on the edge there where some of the clients, some of my clients are doing music for a living and that's great. And some of them are, uh, you know, they have other jobs and they do music for fun. So it's right. So anyways, and in those cases, it's usually a little more work because they've, maybe they've mixed it themselves or they're mixing it with, you know, a studio that doesn't have as much experience and they're leaving more on the table to be done in mastering where they want some extra help because they don't trust their listening environment and it hasn't been vetted by record label people and producers. You know, it's usually just a guy that has his own studio and he or she makes it sound as good as they can in their room, but they're like, I don't know if this is any good. I'm trusting you right. to listen to it in your room and decide if it's to do the final touches. So it's it's hard to pick out, you know, there's obviously mastering legends, but I guess my point is the more the longer you've been doing it, if you're any good, you start to get better sounding records that need less work. Um but there are people, there's a really great book if anyone wants to read more about mastering. It's called Mastering Audio: The Art and Science by Bob Katz. That's Bob K A T Z. It's basically the Bible of mastering for people that want to get into it. Um, It's a technical read. It took me at least a handful of reads. Every time I would read it, a couple more things would make sense. So I've read it multiple times. It really helped me make that transition from mixing to mastering. Um, But again, you got to read it a few times and break it up because it's very technical. But it's kind of, like I said, the Bible. If if you haven't read it and you want to do mastering, I can't recommend it enough. So... And I can't really speak much for Bob's mastering work. We have different styles, and I honestly just haven't listened to much of it. But he's very active on the audio forums, and like I said, his book is amazing. So I guess I think I forgot what the actual question was, but if you're talking about um, people to look up to or things like that, it's more on the educational side. There's people that have written great books and are very forthcoming with knowledge about how to do this or that instead of keeping it a secret. 
And some people think mastering is like a dark art and a secret, and it's honestly just really boring and <laughs> um, less exciting than most people would think, which is why some people go into it and some people don't. I mean, you're not producing beats and all the, you know, you're not doing all the fun stuff. It's really dry. It's a pretty dry process. So um, if you get bored easily, mastering is not for you. If you have a hard time working on music that you don't love, mastering is not for you. Cause like I said, I, I do about an album a day or a bunch of singles and EP a day. I do a lot of songs every week and there's no way I could work on, there's no way I could love every song or project I work on. The quantity is just too high. Okay. I appreciate the work and I can usually find something good in the project and I'm not listening to it for pleasure. I'm listening to it to, for work and right. I'm listening to it analytically to get it to translate. I, um, I very rarely even notice the lyrics until sometimes I'll, you know, a client will post the song after it's out and I'll hear a snippet of it. And then I'll finally realize what they're saying in the lyrics once it's released on Apple music. Cause I can take my technical hat off and listen to it as a normal person. But you know, when I'm mastering, I, I don't care if it's the worst song ever or the best. I'm my job is the same either way. So right. some people can't do that though. They they're like, cause I used to teach mastering at uh, Milwaukee area technical college taught there for a couple of years. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, we can talk about it. Um, I taught first, I started teaching just introduction to audio software, like the basics, like how to open pro tools and make a track and record something on it and like move it around the super basics, the first class the students take. Um, then I taught the mastering class for a while cause somebody retired and I would have to even, but even in the earlier classes, like the introduction, I'd have to tell students, like, if you want to do this for a living, you have to get past the content, at least when you're starting out. When you're starting out, you got to take every job you can get, pretty much. If you do a good job and you become in demand, then you can pick your projects and be a little more selective and not, you know, about what you work on. But at first, you have to just take everything and you have to learn to not get too attached to like what the content is. If, if someone's paying you to work on their stuff, you, you need to find a way to find something good in it, whether it's a great drummer or cool lyrics or whatever, just don't get fixated on, Oh, I don't like the lyrics or that's, that's a dumb lyric or that keyboard part is stupid. <laughs> Cause if you do, um, you might, you might want to find a different job cause it's just going to drive you crazy. Cause right. um, there's so much people making music, which is great for us engineers, but not all of it is top 40 classic albums. Some of it's like, their friends are going to listen to it and that's it. But you know, it, every project helps you hone your skills and get better at what you do. Every project is a learning experience. So like, even if it's an album that I don't care for the music and I'll never listen to for fun, maybe I discovered a new technique or how to solve a problem that I'm going to use on my next project. So nice. Nice. Anyways, that's a long answer, but I try to just not get too attached to it emotionally because you just can't if you're doing it every day. Now, if, if you're doing music for fun as a hobby, that's great. I know some producers that they don't produce every day, but they only work on stuff they're really passionate about. And that's cool too. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a personal choice. But if I only wanted to master a certain genre of music and songs that I liked, suddenly I'm working 
every day to maybe once or twice a month. And uh, and I, I don't want this to sound like I don't like the music I work on. I really do like the music I work on. I'm thankful to have clients, you know, returning clients that send me awesome albums to work on. But I guess more for when you're starting out, you got to just roll up your sleeves and be thankful that you're working on anything. Right, instead of, exactly. Instead of worrying about the lyrics or or the drum you don't like the drum fill in a certain song. It's like, well, if you're producing, you can suggest a different drum fill. If you're mastering, just get over it and make sure that it, <laughs> make sure that it translates well and right and on to the next job. Do you find that now that we're um, in 2023, you know, 22, 23, you're getting more project because a lot of musicians were working on projects while during quarantine. Um, I can't say that things definitely didn't slow down and they definitely got busier. You know, there was that month, like March of 2020 was a little scary just cause I didn't know what the, nobody knew what the world was going to bring. Um, so I'm like, wow, my, I remember mastering a record in early March thinking, is this the last record I'm going to master? Yeah. Um, and it was a really great record and I, I'll never forget working on that record. Um, but I, I never got, and for me, things never slowed down. I thought they were going to, and there was a lot of confusion in the world, but mm-hmm. I mean, stuff kept coming in and then, uh, you know, I got a huge bo- replacements box set to master and that, you know, albums take a day, but box sets could take multiple days. Cause it was like 70 songs and some of it needs to restoration work. Like it's old tapes and more tedious than a newly produced track. Right. But yeah, I mean, then I, I did see a big uptick in single songs that are self produced and mixed at home. You know, people just wanted to put out a single just to stay relevant, you know, stay top of mind in the world because they couldn't really be playing shows. Um, but now I'd say for the last year or so, things are basically back to normal in terms of, you know, bands are going into studios and making normal records. You know, the home recording thing was already there, but obviously the pandemic turbocharged that, you know, people realized that you can do a lot with just a little, with a microphone and a little interface. Mm -hmm. Um, You can do a lot of cool stuff these days. Um, I mean, the cost of entry is so low compared to when I was starting out. I mean, um, you know, the tools that we could afford. Well, I guess, you know, we were recording on a, cassette eight track with you know sm58 and that was the top of our that was the best we could do as people mm-hmm. with no money and now it's like you know you can make a really pro sounding record for not much money no uh, so it's pretty incredible so i think people just leaned on that um so i don't know if that answers your question either no but. yeah i mean this is all great information i mean hopefully for those that are listening are getting a better idea you know, what goes into mastering and the steps it takes. And um, the next question I was going to ask you is, you know, you were a recording and mixing engineer when you started out. What did you learn during that time that has helped you as a mastering engineer? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think, you know, recording and mixing just heightened my sense of detail because I was getting a little bit too detailed with editing drums and 
layering stuff and editing percussion, getting it so perfect to the grid and not for every project. Sometimes I did projects that were no metronome or click track and just really loose and raw, but I think it just gave me, it just um, trained my ear is basically what happened. I got lots of ear training where I could, but the thing is in mastering, you know, if I hear an out-of-tune bass or out-of-tune guitar chord, I'm not able to fix that. Right. But in general, it just, it just really developed my ear for like what sounds good, what sounds appropriate for different genres. Um, you know, what were they going for? How far could they take it? And, you know, what, what was their intention versus what, what's what I'm hearing, you know? So it's just, I just think a lot of repetition and ear training, which is something there's really no shortcut for. I mean, you can go on YouTube and find, you know, all these videos for, 10 shortcuts to be a better this or that. And mm -hmm. there are things you can learn from those videos, but I don't think there's any shortcut for experience. I mean, no. it's just, you have to put in the repetitions um, because it's just like anything else. I mean, sure, there are people that are naturally gifted and have a natural talent for it, but for the most part, you just have to, you know, I'm, you know, looking back, I really wanted to be doing these bigger projects when I was, you know, 10, 15 years ago. I don't know if I'd have been ready for them. I think if I would have got them, I would have failed and not gotten the call. Well, I probably wouldn't have gotten finished. Yeah. I said, we're going to use someone else. Gotcha. Certainly wouldn't have got another chance or callback. So I think I was in the right place at that time to be working with a lot of local bands and I still work with local bands, but you know what I mean? Just, basically friends just kind of figuring out what, what they want to sound like and just learning the process. Um, cause there's, there's really no way around, around the experience part of it. Great. Um, I'm using the free version of zoom and it's giving me like the five minutes before it cuts us off. Okay. So would you mind just, I'm going to end this and just relink link back in and we'll continue the conversation. Yeah. It's no problem at all. All right, um, cool. Are you going to send me a new link then, or it's a, you can use the same one? Okay, so you'll end the call, then I'll just click on it, and we'll come back. Exactly. Okay, sounds good. All right, I'll see you in a second. All right. All right, are we back? We are back. Oh, I'll do the video again. Okay. All right, my Pro Tools is still recording, so we should be good. Yep, mine is too. I use Reaper instead. I've used Pro Tools in the past, but it just got too expensive. Yeah, I still have to keep it around because I have one particular client where I do a different type of post-production work, and I just do it in Pro Tools. Yeah. And I use Reaper for... Part of my mastering process, and I use WaveLab for the main part. Um, and the only reason I'm not recording in Reaper is because I only know how to use Reaper in one context. And I've tried to set up just a track to record these interviews in, and it's always a 
it takes more time than I would expect, so I just still record it in Pro Tools because I know that like the back of my hand. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. But yeah, Pro Tools is getting a little. I don't even know if I own it anymore, if I rent it, or what the deal is. <laughs> right. I think it's every two years or one year I pay for this or that. But right. I still I do a little bit of post production work um, for these short videos, and um, I basically just have to do them in Pro Tools, so I keep yeah. it around. Um. So, Kyle, the next thing I was going to talk to you or ask you about was the License Lab. How did you get involved with that, and what is that? For for listeners to, you know, kind of know about that part of your business. Oh yeah, license lab. Well, when I so I was working at Smart Studios, in Madison, two thousand eight. I could tell that the studio was going to close. You know, bands were just not coming in anymore to do full records. They were coming in to do drums, taking it home and finishing it, and maybe coming back to mix. So anyways, I'm like, I'm going to move to Milwaukee. I have no other plans, but that's what I'm going to do. And uh, I just emailed a bunch of people in Milwaukee saying, hey, I'm going to be moving there and I might need a studio to record at to rent. You know, do you rent out to freelancers? And um, Daniel Holter, who hadn't started the license lab yet, had a different company called Burst Collective, which did music licensing. You know, it wasn't a, people think it's a jingle house. It wasn't a jingle house where you're writing like, say, big money at Menards and stuff like that. It, right. What they would do is they would create usually instrumental albums of a certain style of music or a theme and then they would put that out in the world for people to license so if you're making a a car chase tv show like world's greatest police chases or uh, all these tv shows out there have background music incidental music they call it um, there's already a bunch of songs you can just pull from without having to contact you know you have to contact them but you know pre-made songs that people can drop in commercials, videos, all sorts of stuff. So uh, are these royalty free or are they more like you pay for the license to use? No, the people pay for the license to use the songs. I mean, there are royal, this is like, you know, almost 20 years ago now. So the internet wasn't what it was today. Right. There's a lot of royalty free stuff out there and you get what you pay for, but uh, you know, no, this is legitimate stuff that people would license and, the writers would collect royalties from long i'm trying i'm trying to make it short but daniel basically said i forgot what he said you know at the time they were just not set up for freelancers to come in and just record bands it was set up for recording their library production music um but we did stay in touch i did some editing work for them i did record a couple projects there but it was always a bit of a headache to you couldn't just walk in and plug in and you're recording a band it was like oh we got to change this over because this person has it set up a certain way. It wasn't very guest friendly, but we always stayed in touch. And a couple of years later, he said, I'm starting the license lab and I would like you to do all the mastering work for it because we're, we're going to be working with a variety of producers and content providers, songwriters, production teams that are going to be producing songs for the license lab, which again is music that gets posted somewhere where, people can license it for their video. You know, they do big stuff for like NBC, you know, movies you've heard of, stuff like that. It's pretty big stuff. Commercials that are during the Super Bowl and all that stuff. So, um, but he wanted to have one person do all the mastering so it's somewhat cohesive when it hits their distribution platform, which at the time was just their website. Now it's just, now it's distributed through Universal Music, um, 
which allows them to focus more on the music and less on the marketing side of things. But um, so early on, Daniel invited me on to, to be part of the team. So I just do all the mastering work, which is a little different than mastering records because um, the, the song to song flow doesn't really matter. Cause these are basically single songs that are in a group, but it's not like you're going to listen to it like an album, but what's more different is there's many different versions of the same song. So they might have a full song. That's a minute and a half to two minutes. They're usually not long songs. It's like a B a B done right. there's really bridges. There's no rarely vocals. Um, but then within that song, there's could be anywhere from four to 10 versions where it's like the same song, but without any lead elements so that if someone's trying to speak over a song, there's not a distracting melody that's doing a lead a flashy lead that's going to distract from the dialogue um and there's a 30 second version for promotional use and a version of just the percussion elements so there's a lot of alternate versions of each songs so it's a lot of details to take care of um in a different way than mastering albums so um you know there was a time my role there has gone up and down in terms of commitments it's kind of at a lower point right now just because they're doing a little bit less albums per year than before. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a time when I would dedicate a full day a week plus some odds and ends. And now it's like a little less than that. Um, it's slowed down a little bit. Um, so I was definitely never like a full-time employee there or anything. It was more just like it started out as I did their mastering work in exchange for having a studio space there okay um, at one point well actually at two points my studio was in their building the first time it was a barter system the second time it wasn't you know when i moved out of there i became you know more compensated financially and then when i moved back i was you know i'm still compensated financially but i started out as a more lower key thing and then but you know it's license lab has been going for over 10 years now um team members have changed but basically they're creating instrumental songs as a album package usually that anyone can license um, i wish i knew more about the business side of it i just stay on the mastering side of it and uh make sure all their stuff sounds good so people want to license it and put it in their tv show or movie or video production or whatever it is they're doing great and i so you continue to work with them or is that something that's no longer a project for you yeah no I, I still work with them um every week basically you know we basically have a monthly agreement um so i'm still we're still business partners and i still do their work it, it was based in milwaukee um uh, technically wauwatosa um there's a really cool building studio home base um daniel recently sold it to someone else because he relocated to seattle even before the pandemic, the team was starting to be spread out across the U.S. and everyone was kind of working remotely anyway. Um, so it's changed in that regard where location doesn't matter. Um, there was always, you know, songwriting teams in Nashville, some in L.A., um, some in other countries. So, yeah, I mean, it just kind of continues to slowly evolve and I just roll with the changes um, in terms of how many songs they need mastered every week or month or, you know, just right. kind of just, but lately they've been focus, focusing more on 
I don't want to say more on quality because it's always been high quality, but just slowing down and uh, doing less tracks and making making them count a little more and things like that. So less volume, um, and some things like that. So gotcha. Um, as we're wrapping this up, let's talk um, more about um, people working with you now on your website. You have this um, project cost calculator. Why don't you talk a little bit about that and how that works? Yeah, well, when I transitioned into mastering, I realized I was asking everyone for the same information for every project, and it was getting annoying. But I didn't have a system in place for it because it was a, such a slow change. You know, I went from producing and recording bands and mixing um, to where we're often there in the same room where they can say, here's the song order, and here's what this song's called, and blah, blah, blah. Well, when I transitioned into mastering, I was get, doing a lot of stuff unattended by myself. So that means someone has to provide the information to me, um, you know. And for people that don't know, I mean, the mastering engineer does need to know the song order and you know the album title at some point and the correct song titles. All those details matter. So I said, how can I collect all this information easily? I, you know, I probably had to email template, but my friend and web developer Marty, you know, together, you know, he did the work. I had the idea. Like, can we put up a form that just asks the questions because it's every every project I need to know the artist or band name i need to know the album title i need to know the song order i need to know what formats you're going to release this on is it just cd and digital or streaming is it you're going to do vinyl you do cassettes all this stuff you know do you need the instrumental versions mastered so we just put together a project form of like here's how much everything costs so you can put in you know five song album ep or ten song album then you can click that you need a vinyl master. You can click that you need the instrumentals done. You can click that you have some clean versions of songs, you know, to, to send out to radio because the album versions have swear words. Mm-hmm. Basically, all the stuff you can determine how much it's going to cost, and if you are happy with that, you can click to the next page, and that lets you input all the project data. So. Um, and I always say this on podcasts, and it's usually true. Usually when I get off of a podcast or something where I'm not watching my phone or computer, you know, there's usually one or two projects that have come in because you can submit your project without even getting a hold of me if you want to. You know, you just go on the page, enter the details, shows you the cost, then it comes into my inbox, and then there's a page to upload the files to me so that, um, you know, because usually... These files are too big to attach to email, but basically right. all the info I need to get running. Now we can, of course, email or set up a phone call to discuss the project, but a lot of people, especially my repeat clients, they don't need to do that. They just say, here's the information, here's the files, let, let me know you can have it done. Because um, that also lets people, you know, that I just copy and paste the titles of the songs. You know, I don't want to be a spell checker. Mm-hmm. Obviously I'll, if I see something wrong, I'll ask if it's meant to be incorrect or if it was a mistake, but I don't want to be a copywriting proof. I want to, you to tell me exactly how the song titles are going to appear and I'll copy that and paste it in. Just keeps things clean. Um, so yeah, I think, yeah. So anyone can go on the website and submit a project or see how much it's going to cost. And, you know, there's no payment due until the project is done. I don't, uh, I don't send an invoice until it's approved. A couple times per year, usually maybe something doesn't work out, and if it doesn't, there's no cost due. You know, it's not like 
I can't be the person that did a bad job or something didn't like the job and then made them pay for it and they get nothing out of it. Yeah. Now I do have a I do have a page for single songs that does take payment up front. And that's just because A, it's a smaller dollar amount. It's more of like an express checkout. Like, you know, one song doesn't cost a whole lot and it just saves me from having to deal with the invoice later. Um, and it lets you submit everything right then and there for but that's just for singles. It's a separate page. And it, it also asks less questions because with the single song release, there's a lot less questions. It's usually right. just usually just going to be released on streaming and it's more simple. Whereas when you get EPs and albums, it can get more complicated. Yeah. I got so. you. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you wanted to talk about? Oh man, that's a good question. Um, not really. I mean, I did play a lot of live music when I was in my twenties and I think that really helped. Um, I think that really helped build the client base. I see a lot of younger engineers struggling now or not struggling, but trying really hard to build up, you know, build their business, you know, social media ads, they can augment existing momentum, but I don't think they really work well for the arts. You know, I don't think people are needing recording done or graphic design or anything in the arts world and see a Facebook ad. And that works for, to get the business. It's usually, it's a very word of mouth business. And I didn't know I was doing it at the time, but the best word of mouth networking I could do in my twenties was be in a band and, and be playing shows and meeting people. This again was just before social media caught on, you know, this would have been early two thousands through the late two thousands. And I did still play live music into the mid 2010s, late 2010s and kind of did that all over again where i met people i wouldn't have met if i was sitting in my studio and that led to really really cool projects so i'm really glad i got out of my comfort zone and played some live shows again and met people that i wouldn't have otherwise met because it's only helped my studio business kind of grow even more you got to get out there and meet meet people that's the best way i, I just don't think I don't know what it's like to be, you know, in my late teens, early twenties in this, this day and age, even, yeah. with, even without the pandemic, just the fact that everything's so social media driven, um, you know, we just, I was just lucky to grow up in a music scene that had so many shows and some all ages venues and just ways to meet people in person. Cause they'd be like, Oh, we heard your CD. It sounds great. Can you record us? Or, you know, we heard this other band CD you did, you know, can you record us again before social, before I had a website, even I was really booked. Uh, you know, I didn't even have a website until 2007 or eight or so it was. And then I was terrible website, but it was at least a way to e find me and email me. And then, then the website got better once I met Marty, but that's, that's one thing that I can think of that we didn't touch on is just if, I guess I don't know what your main audience is for this kind of podcast, but if, if it's people that want to get into engineering, I can't stress just getting out there and I'm not a very social, I'm very like uh, introverted. I'm not good at um, meeting people, but I guess if you get in your element, like a, a show or a, you know, you know, something like that where yeah. you feel comfortable, I wouldn't be good at meeting people at like a sales convention or a, 
trade show for insurance people or you know right I mean? uh no, I, a lot of places that wouldn't be comfortable but um anyways that's my whole thing about that yeah yeah i i hear you i'm i'm not an extrovert per se i'm more introverted as well one of the things that i remember reading in your bio is that you got to play on the late show with stephen colbert how was that experience um that was cool um how did that come about well um this this all ties into getting out of your comfort zone well, one of my all-time favorite bands is The Replacements from Minneapolis. They were big in the 80s, um, broke up by 90 or 91. But their bass player, Tommy Stinson, kept doing music and had various, you know, he he played bass for Guns N' Roses for, I think, almost 20 years, which is crazy to think about. Yeah. Um, but he also had a solo career. Um, and at some point, I ended up playing bass with him a little bit or something i forgot how that came about but then he had formed a different band and they were going to be touring the midwest in january and tommy's manager slash my friend asked if i would do live sound and i'm like man i don't do live sound like i don't <laughs> i don't want to do live sound but i'm like okay it's january i probably won't be that busy it might be fun to hang out with these guys. I'll do live sound. Okay. Um, I'll try to keep it short, but basically the, the person who was going to be playing bass for this run of shows had some pretty bad health issues and she couldn't make it. Um, and she's a great bass player, cat popper. I mean, she's played with Ryan Adams, Jack white, um, all these pretty big people. She's a great bassist in demand. So it went from, can you do sound to, Hey, can you play bass? Cause having a bass player is slightly more important than having a, your own live sound person. So, you know, I had played bass with Tommy before, so it wasn't like totally, um, foreign, but I'm like, okay, I better study up these songs. So I ended up playing bass for this week of shows and that, that just turned into more shows. And he reformed his nineties band called bash and pop and people really liked it and he made a record that was put out by fat possum records which if you want to look up fat possum it's I mean it's an independent label but they've done you know black keys they do a lot of great reissues al green pretty notable okay. label so it was, it was a decent label with a budget and a promo team so when the record came out we did some touring and then somehow someone got us connected with the colbert show so hmm. We did a tour that took us out to New York City. Um, and, you know, it's just so weird to be playing, you know, like club shows where there's one or 200 people there. And then, all on, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then all of a sudden it's like Thursday or something and you're playing at the, the well, I'm blanking out, Ed Sullivan Theater or mm -hmm. whatever it is. And you're playing on national television. And then the next day you're back to playing a, a club and you hope two or 300 people are there but it was cool um it was, it was cool to see how how those kind of shows operate um and it was nice to be i don't love new york city but you know being in a nice hotel and you know they, they made it comfortable for us and stuff like that so um yeah but otherwise it was the actual playing was a little bit like playing in a mall because the lights were really bright and people weren't necess necessarily there to see you. So right. it was really, really weird to be like, you know, you're used to playing in clubs where people are having beers and super pumped up and it's dark. 
um, versus doing a show like that. It's very bright and maybe an eighth of the people there have heard of you. Yeah. Everyone has to sit down and they're far away. Um, <laughs> so, and you know, you, you don't really, I mean, obviously you do a sound check, but you don't, you just get one song and, and it's over. And I, that clip is not online anywhere for some reason. And the only reason I know that people care about it is um, the song we played didn't really have an ending. I think it might even fade out on the record. So we're like, how are we going to end this? And Tommy's manager had the idea of, Stephen Colbert coming out and just unplugging our instruments, <laughs> you know, because it's just kind of going on and on the same riff, right? And he did that, but then like somehow him and Tommy ended up wrestling uh, on the stage. Oh, jeez, that, that part wasn't planned, and uh, so I think and there's been some gifts of it made and stuff, but I think people want to see that again because um, the whole wrestling match at the end, and uh, so. That's the only reason I know it's not online, but that was cool. I mean, um, it's an experience I'll never forget. Uh, yeah, very cool. As I wrap this up, is there um, something that you've experienced as um, a recording or mixing engineer or a mastering engineer that just made a big impression on you? Um, I don't think there's a single thing. I just think it's really long-term Um you know, I've been doing it for so long now, I don't think I could do anything else. Um, you know, I just think I'm thankful that people still call me to work on their projects and I get to work every day and there's no shortage. Was the question, is there something I've learned or? Um, just an experience that's made a big oh, impression on you. Um, no, I, I think it's a ton of small experiences that just make me appreciate what I get to do every day. You know, there's no, there's no single experience that I can think of. I mean, it's been such a slow build. And again, that's what I used to stress to the students is like, yes, you're taking a recording a production course, but you're not going to be a wizard at this when you're done with this. This is the, still the very beginning of your journey and your learning. And it takes yeah. a long time and having the skills is one thing, but having the, people skills is the other thing, like, especially for, not so much for mastering anymore for me, but like if you're recording with people all day, you don't want to be annoying to be around. You want to be fun to hang out with all day. Right. And that's something that's hard to teach the people skills. I mean, all the audio schools teach like how to do this or that or that in pro tools, but they don't teach like how to hang out in a studio and not be annoying. Especially right. Assistant and your job is to just keep your mouth shut and only speak if spoken to and anticipating what's going to happen so you can be ready you know if they're going to decide to do tambourine overdubs you've got that tambourine mic set up and dialed in and headphones ready that's your job so they don't really teach that so much but yeah i don't think there's any one experience that stands out it's just years and years of doing it all in a way blurring together yeah I'm, i think i'm at a point where it'd be hard for me to do anything else Gotcha. At this point, I just don't know if I have any other skills or employability, to be honest with you. So hopefully I just keep doing this. Right, exactly, exactly. So is there anything else you would like to cover um, before I let you go on? I do think it would be good to talk about the topic of automated mastering because you see a lot of companies offering this now, automated mastering, what's the other term, AI mastering, things like that. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, it's it's 
it's easy for me to look, you know, kind of paranoid or suspicious because I do mastering for a living, but those services really aren't doing mastering. They're doing stereo processing of your files and stereo processing of files is something that I do in the mastering process, but it's not mastering and it's not the only thing I do. You know, there's a good saying that mastering is a process. It's not processing, but it's an actual process. And part of that process is applying EQ, compression, limiting, DSing to a stereo mix, but it's not some it's not quite that simple. You know, other parts of mastering include sequencing an album so the flow between songs feels good. Sometimes it's overlapping crossfading songs so that they feel good. And not only so that they feel good, but so that when you s- listen to that transition, there's no tick or pop or glitch or hiccup that it plays smoothly from one song to the next, which seems like a simple concept, but you have to be a little bit careful how you prepare those files for all the formats. Um, there's quality control. So I listen through every song I master with headphones for clicks and pops and ticks. And a lot of those things fly under the radar in mixing and in lesser monitoring environments. But when you put it under the microscope of a nice mastering studio, speakers and headphones, and as you raise the average loudness, those ticks and pops and plosives, and sometimes even strong S sounds can just become a little too much. And we can address those in mastering and your automated services aren't going to listen through and do that. Same with, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but at the end of a song, have you ever heard like the metronome bleeding through the person's headphones? Like, no, but I've, I've heard like whatever was playing through their headphones or something. Yeah. You yeah. can kind of hear I that a, a little bit. I, I get a number of songs where like at the, on the last chord rings out, especially if it's an acoustic songwriter thing and you can hear that metronome just beeping away in the background. And I can very fairly easily erase that, you know, with Isotope RX, which is kind of like Photoshop for audio. I can see it on this. I can see like an X-ray view of the waveform, and I can, I can draw those out. But it takes again a human to like listen and know that that's a problem and not a musical thing, right? And how much to address it. You know, you can't just apply the D clicker across the entire song because it's going to it's going to ruin the snare hits and the percussion and all sorts of stuff. So you have to listen and say, Oh, that's a distraction or that's a problem. I'm going to circle just that thing and remove it. And another kind of giveaway of why automated, you know, mastering is not real mastering is because, and it's not because they're using software instead of, you know, analog gear or any of that stuff. It's because let's say that you sent, your song to lander which is one of the popular ones automated mastering let's say you sent your song to it and you got it back and you sent them that same result but you sent them the result back through lander again it's gonna apply even more processing so it starts out by assuming that processing needs to happen which is the wrong approach you know a mastering engineer is going to listen to your song and say this only needs a little bit of EQ here and a little bit of that. And it's all already very good. Or it's going to say, actually it needs a lot of this and a lot of that, but it's going to listen and have some human emotion and feeling about it. Um, and then if I mastered a song for you and you sent me the mastered version back, I'm not going to do the same exact thing. I'm not going to run it through and try to, you know, do a bunch more processing. But if, 
with Lander, if you send a song through it and then send the result back through it again, it's just going to keep guessing and trying to do stuff and presets and just it's it's going to and a good mastering engineer would never do that. If if I mastered a song for you and you sent it back to me, I would say, you know, honestly, I don't think I can do much else with this. It's already pretty well cooked. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's loud. It's EQ'd to what I think is a good EQ. I've cleaned up these issues. Um, and then the other thing automated mastering doesn't really think about, aside from like sequencing your record, which is part of mastering, you know, putting the songs in the correct order with the spaces, it doesn't really understand soft songs versus loud songs. So let's say you're a rock band, but your last song is an acoustic. So just acoustic guitar and vocals or something, you know, yeah. or be an interlude. You know, I've done many albums where a lot of high energy songs, but one's a purposely quiet interlude where there's just like minimal stuff. It's meant to be a little break. Um, the mastering software is not going to know that it's going to try to master it as loud as, the other songs or whatever preset that you pick. Yeah. Um, so when I'm mastering a record like that, I really cue into the vocal level. You know, if I have a bunch of heavy songs and a quiet song or not quiet, if I have a bunch of heavy songs and a sparse song and there's vocals, I try to make it so the vocalist feels like they're the same loudness. You know, the music's going to relax, but to me it feels most natural when the vocal level's pretty consistent or, or whatever the constant instrument is. If you're doing a instrumental polka album, it could just be like the main uh, accordion is the same level. I mean, that's an extreme example, but any, you know what I mean? You got to have some kind of human um, reaction to the music. Cause if, if you take a bunch of songs that are varied in style and you master them to a number, they're not going to feel natural when you listen to that okay Um, an example would be a rock song if i master that to a certain level let's say and if you don't know what this means it doesn't matter but if you master it to minus seven lufs integrated a rock song and then you take an acoustic song and master to that same measured loudness the acoustic song is going to feel way louder because it has a lot less stuff going on so everything can be louder and closer and it's going to feel wrong it's going to be like why you know if you go to a show a live show and there's a full rock band pretty loud and when the singer does his acoustic portion or her acoustic portion there's a natural relief in the loudness and it kind of and it feels good it's nice that relief sometimes so if you just go by numbers and measurements the algorithm is not going to understand that and suddenly your quiet songs are the same number measured loudness as the rock songs and a lot of times can feel even louder than the rock songs. So it's just going to feel off. It's just not going to understand that song to song dynamics very well. If you just go by numbers, it would be kind of like if, if I mastered an album with my speakers turned off and only looked at the meters, like I could probably get it pretty close, but, um, if I did that, if I just looked at the meters and had my speakers turned off, processed the files, you know, did stereo processing to the files and sent them back to my clients, they wouldn't be happy with that because probably going to sound a little bit off and it's not going to be like a fully sequenced album. It's just going to be a folder of wave files, which is not a mastered album. Right. Uh, you can maybe get away with it for streaming a, a single song streaming because there's no sequencing involved 
But, you know, I go through it with, like I said, with a fine tooth comb of like, you know, some file, sometimes I get mixed files that have a couple seconds of silence before the song starts, which is not a big deal. But if you send that to Lander, they're not going to trim that off. And then mm-hmm. someone's got to do it. You know, it's not the most exciting part of the mastering process, but <laughs> and it sounds kind of inconsequential, but someone just has to be there doing quality control of like, does this song have four seconds of dead space at the end of it? And do you really want that? Cause it's going to take four seconds now for the next song to kick in. If you just upload that to streaming. Right. And, and these groups, you know, these bands, they put all this time and effort and money into recording and getting this ready for a mastering engineer. And, you know, if there's anything that needs to be taken care of, you're like, like you said, you're like the last step before it goes out to the world. Yeah. I can be like, you know, this song has a little more low end than the rest, but that's okay because it's, a song that has the floor tom going the whole time it's not like it's the bass guitar that's you know i I can tell that it's someone riding the floor tom the whole time and it's Mm -hmm. meant to be a little boomy because it's right floor tom Mm -hmm. whereas you know if you take a song that just has kick and snare the boominess could be like a bass guitar that's too loud and you know only a human is going to know what that is and if it's correct or not Mm -hmm. and you know there's when the, when the automated mastering services first came out, there was a lot of comparisons to like it's kind of like the McDonald's of mastering. Like, you know, sometimes <laughs> you had a long day and you you're, you went to your kid's soccer practice or game and you just want to get home, but you run through McDonald's and you have dinner and, and everyone's fine. But if you're having a special occasion like an anniversary, a birthday, graduation, you're not going to go to McDonald's probably um, for that celebration meal. Um, yeah. Some people I know aren't as fortunate to go to a nice restaurant, but for the most part, if it's something you, you want to remember, it's a special thing like an album, you know, you don't want to go to the McDonald's of mastering for that because, and I guess my main point, it's a bummer that they're selling it as mastering because if they would just call it automated stereo processing, that is what they're doing there. Yeah. Stereo processing the songs using AI, but it's giving people the false sense of their project being mastered, meaning somebody went through it with a fine tooth comb and quality controlled it and gave them the correct formats for CD streaming vinyl. If they're doing vinyl, mm-hmm. all this stuff, you know, you just, it's kind of like, it's a little bit like garbage in garbage out. And I'm not saying anyone's mixes are garbage, but you know, it's, it can only do so much. Right. Um, and there's a human touch to it too. Yeah, it's and it's not a bad way to see how your mix could react to being pushed super loud when it is mastered, if that's what you're going for. So it can be used as a tool for approximating how, because you know the thing is like if you do a great mix without any limiting on it and it's quieter than mastered stuff, that's not a problem because it's not mastered yet. But you may want to know how much do the drums get diminished when I crank a limiter on it and push it loud or does the tambourine stick out too much now when, you know, when it's EQ'd this way. So they're, they're cool tools for getting rough ideas on things. And, you know, they have their places. If you have a hundred library music tracks that are just little instrumental things that are going to get placed in a TV show or film, maybe running them through that is fine because again, there's going to be somebody else quality controlling that when they assemble the tv show or film you know it's not going to go out into the world without getting a human right after it but i really think it's 
not a good idea to just run your songs through a computer and release them on streaming if it's anything you care about. I mean, mastering is costs money, but when I looked at Lander to get the high resolution file for a whole album, I didn't think it was significantly cheaper than hiring, you know, and there's plenty of reasonable, competent mastering engineers that are yeah. not too far off from that price range. And you're going to get your, your music's just going to get treated with much more respect, well, respect in general. And again, that human touch of like knowing if that acoustic song is meant to be more relaxed, that interludes more re- supposed to be more relaxed or, you know, like I'm doing a, a remaster right now for an album and there's a couple times where the music stops for a second or for a measure or two and like there's noise floor and it's like do we want the noise there or right. do we trim up that noise a little bit and those things kind of fly under the radar when you're recording there's honestly more important things to worry about when you're recording and mixing mm-hmm. uh, and you got a whole band in the room you're excited you're talking you're not some of those details get missed because everyone's in the room talking or someone's got a bag of potato chips and it's crinkling and you're just not hearing the details. So some of those things get missed and it's really a mastering is a good place to put things under the microscope. And, you know, I'm not saying you have to fix every problem, but be aware that it's there and make sure that it's intentional and and not going to be a problem. Cause again, the the biggest, I I forget who pointed this out, but you know, running the song through Lander more than once, it's just going to destroy it twice. You know, it's going to keep guessing. It's basically guessing. And the proof that it's guessing is that if you run the, if you run a song through it and then run that result through it, it's going to try to do more work. And it's like, well, why don't you just get it right the first time? Why is, why mm-hmm. are you doing more work on the second time? If, if it's supposed to be so great. And, right. Uh, and the other thing is like, it's kind of disheartening to see audio software companies selling mastering. You know, I think, I think Slate just came out with an online mastering thing. And it's like, hmm. you know, a chunk of your client base or a chunk of your users are mastering engineers and you're kind of throwing them under the bus by starting this service. And even, you know, calling, you know, Ozone, you know, Ozone by Isotope is a mastering tool, but it's not mastering. It's not. Right. It's, it's a tool that you use for mastering. And, you know, mastering is a whole kind of, process that involves listening deciding stereo processing quality control sequencing the record delivering formats and there's just a whole lot more to it than just the stereo processing so kind of that's why i wanted to talk about it is it kind of kind of bugs me when these companies advertise mastering when they're really giving you stereo processing and yeah that's only it's probably the most noticeable part of my job as a mastering engineer, but it's not the only thing I do. Like I said, if I, if I sold my speakers and just looked at meters and delivered a folder of files without listening to it, no, I wouldn't be in business right now. I'd be yeah. probably fired or, you know, very, <laughs> very few clients if I just did that. So right. you need ears, you need a little bit of human uh, intuition, you know, unless it's just demos, you know, I, I get why these, you know, these are things are fine for demos or, Again, if you're planning on using a human mastering engineer and you wanted to see how, how does your mix sound with some process, some approximate processing that a mastering engineer may do, you know, you can 
run it through there. It might expose things you didn't realize, like the sibilance is a little loud or that one keyboard part gets buried or that one keyboard part becomes more prominent. So mm-hmm. it, it's good for that kind of stuff, but I just can't imagine putting so much time and effort into something and then letting a computer decide the loudness and EQ of it and then not actually listening to it. Yeah. So anyways, I, that was a long rant, but that's okay. I wanted to get that in there. Cause I see, you know, I see so many people either using it or thinking about using it, wondering if it's good or bad. And right. That's my take on it is that it's, it's no, it's good. Care, if it's something you care about, just, it's not hard to find a competent mastering engineer that is affordable in my opinion. Right. Exactly. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you today, Justin, on the Wisconsin Music Podcast. I'm going to have all Justin's information, websites, um, and and all his links in the show notes. But um, Justin, is there, what's your website so people can hear that real quick and then they can explore more later on? Yeah, it's, it's just mysteryroommastering.com. It has a bunch of social media links right on the front page. You can click on and find me on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever. There's also some streaming service links. So if you use Apple Music or Spotify or Tidal, or my favorite is Cobuzz with a Q, um, you can listen to a bunch of stuff I've worked on, a playlist, um, just real quick from that. And there's also a link tree that has even more stuff, like other interviews I've done, my YouTube channel, things like that. Okay, great. Well, Justin, thanks again for being on the show, and it was a great meeting you. Yeah, great to meet you too. Thanks for having me, and keep in touch. And that brings us to the end of another captivating episode of the Wisconsin Music Podcast. A big thanks to our guest, Justin Perkins, for sharing his incredible journey and experience with us today. If you enjoy these episodes and want to stay connected with the vibrant Wisconsin music scene, be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can find us on all major podcast platforms. You can also hear us on Fox City Indie Radio. That's Fox City's Indie Radio on Wednesdays at 6 p.m. and on Sunday at 3 p.m. Remember, music is a journey. And here at the Wisconsin Music Podcast, we're here to be your guide, amplifying Wisconsin's great musicians. Until next time, keep the music alive.